You're listening to Real A Theology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. Welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. My name is Justin. My name is Ben. Um, today we are going to talk about miracles, specifically Hume's kind of infamous argument against uh, the believability of miracles based on. I think infamous is a good choice of words. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I want to start with um, I know, Ben, that you've been kind of researching this uh, quite heavily. Uh, I guess what got you interested in this? Yeah, so my philosophy career has kind of taken me um, from the starting place of David Hume and then kind of meandered through Immanuel Kant and eventually um, ended up in Hegel somehow. And so um, after I really put a lot of time into the my Hegel project, I kind of came back to David Hume because I felt like I had grown so much and learned so much. I wanted to kind of re-explore David Hume in, from fresh eyes. And so in the process of doing that, um, I thought that Hume's Of Miracles was kind of the perfect place to dive in. And so like I wrote a couple of discussion briefs and I've read several papers and then I read several books and then I developed some notes. And so this is kind of the, a long, the culmination of a long project of several years of just kind of playing around with Hume's philosophy and what he can, we can glean from David Hume in our understanding of where the debate on belief in miracles is today. Um, Hume's notorious essay of miracles is found in section 10 of his empiricist masterpiece, Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. He originally meant for it to appear, uh, for it to appear in his earlier work, A Treatise of Human Nature, but withheld it over fears of how it would be received by religious opinions. Um, other than Hume's skeptical arguments regarding inductive reasoning of miracles is probably his most vigorously contested reasoning. Um, it certainly got the attention of his contemporaries, people like George Campbell and uh, Richard Price. And the debate continues to this day, 250 years later. Um, there's still many interesting papers being written and books written on whether or not Hume's argument is successful or whether it's just kind of um, sophistry that we uh, of, a, of a bygone era that we don't need to pay much attention to. All right. Uh, interesting. So I guess when kind of looking at uh, this argument for miracles, where is like the, I guess, the ideal place to start uh, when considering the argument? So you might think that um, just diving right into the first sentences of the essay in section 10 would be the best place to kind of dive into of miracles. Well, actually the best place to dive in is in section six of the inquiry. Um, because in a footnote, the very beginning of that section, Hume makes a distinction um, between proofs and probabilities. And this distinction is really important. 
Hmm. Um, so proofs in Hume and John Locke's sense are arguments involving exceptionless or infallible experience and provide us the last degree of assurance of an event's occurrence. So Hume says, Mr. Locke divides all arguments into demonstrative and probable. In this view, we must say that it is only probable all men must die or that the sun will rise tomorrow. But to conform our language more to common use, we ought to divide arguments into demonstrations, proofs, and probabilities. By proofs, meaning such arguments from experience as leave no room for doubt or opposition. Hmm. So the occurrence of events supported by arguments Hume calls proofs are expected with the highest degree of probability. So Hume calls probabilities those arguments where our observations of past occurrences of an event are mixed. He okay. thinks the probability of, a, of an event occurring is proportional to the frequency of past occurrences in similar kinds of circumstances. So he says... In all cases, we must balance the opposite experiments where they are opposite and deduct the smaller number from the greater in order to know the exact force of the superior evidence. So he thinks that this is all natural. This is kind of how we all reason naturally within everyday ordinary life in that we compare things like the frequencies of past events and if they conflict with other um, events that we expect, we weigh the relative frequencies of our past experiences with them. And so none of this feels controversial yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's certainly interesting to kind of look at the focus of on, on frequencies there, right? That could be, I guess, in some view, I know that uh, some people take that as, as controversial, but you know, we can address that when it when the time comes, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> sure. when we talk about so so Hume is kind of emphasizing the relationship between evidence of testimony and our experience. Um, I guess what's his uh, main reason for making that uh, clear distinction there? Yeah. So Hume doesn't think that um, evidence of testimony is any sort of exception to this balancing of opposite experiments. He thinks that human testimony is really part of the world and something that we um, can evaluate using evidential standards. Yeah. Um, and so our assurance in the credibility of any kind of testimony um, will vary in proportion with our past experiences of testimony of a similar kind. Um, and so, as Hume puts it, um, and as evidence derived from witness and human testimony is founded on past experience, so it varies with the experience and is regarded either as a proof or probability. According to as the conjunction between any particular kind of report and any kind of object has been found to be constant or variable. So Hume has not departed from reasoning we all use in ordinary life regarding testimonies credibility. We use this sort of reasoning in ordinary, in ordinary life when trying to decide whether to believe someone's testimony or not. Hume reminds us of an empirical lesson familiar, familiar to most of us from the Aesop fable, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Mm. A man delirious or noted for falsehood and villainy has no manner of authority with us. So in the Aesop fable, the boy cries wolf several times, even though there is no wolf. Well, when there really was a wolf, the townspeople didn't believe him because they didn't see his testimony as being credible because of their previous encounters with him that gave them reason to doubt his testimony. Right. The frequency with which he was deceiving everyone. 
and so that this is all a lesson that we learn as a very at a very young age of kids like your reputation whether or not people are going to believe your testimony is very dependent on how you behave and if people have reason to doubt that you are of untrustworthy character they're just not going to believe um the claims you make no matter how mundane they might be um so assuming we have not witnessed a miracle firsthand, Hume recognizes the only way we could have any knowledge of a miracle is by the testimony of others. Um, but this isn't an objection to miracles in itself, because we may observe that there is no species of reasoning more common, more useful, and even necessary to human life than that which is derived from the testimony of men and the reports of eyewitnesses and spectators. And so that was a quote by Hume then, right? That, that was a quote bit. from Hume. Okay. Um, um, so the, the, the focus of Hume's miracle centers around determining the credibility of religious miracle testimony so we can proportion our beliefs to the evidence of testimony accordingly. In his 2000 book, A Defense of Hume on Miracles, Robert Fogelin characterizes two useful tests found in Hume's texts when considering evidence of testimony. He calls the first test the direct test. The direct test found in Hume focuses on the reliability of the evidence of testimony by asking if this is the kind of testimony that reliably yields conformity between the facts as they are and as they are reported. Evidence of testimony is more reliable if the witnesses concur rather than contradict, or many rather than few, or of a trustworthy rather than doubtful characters, etc. Mm -hmm. The second test Fogelin finds in Hume's text he calls the reverse test. The reverse test focuses on the prior probability a miracle occurred without considering the evidence of testimony supporting it. The prior improbability of a miracle's occurrence gives us some reason to doubt the reliability of the evidence of testimony. This occurs when evidence of testimony runs counter to common observations from our experience. Okay, so okay, so Hume thinks the prior probability of what is reported by testimony is so important uh, is very important in determining whether you know we should believe a report or not that. That seems, you know, quite obvious. Uh, but perhaps, kind of spelling why Hume thinks that uh, would be helpful here. Yeah. So he's he's really drawing our attention to the prior probability of a miracle, and so uh, um, he thinks that this is going to be a really really important factor um, when concern when considering whether some testimony is reliable or not. So when directly testing. The credibility of evidence of testimony, our considerations should not be limited to the general propensity to accurately report facts as they are. Um, as Hume says, this contrariety of evidence in the present case may be derived from several different causes, from the opposite of contrary testimony, from the character or number of witnesses, from the manner, manner of their delivering their testimony, or from the union of all these circumstances. But then Hume deliberately draws our attention to a very specific case where the fact which testimony endeavors to establish partakes of the extraordinary and the miraculous or the extraordinary and the marvelous. In that case, the evidence resulting from the testimony admits of a diminution greater or less in proportion to the fact is more or less unusual. Again, this is a, this is a quote from Hume. Right, right. Um, so when considering miracle testimony, Hume claims we should evaluate the real reliability of the miracle testimony by paying particular close attention to the prior probability the miracle did not occur. 
And so here's another quote from Hume. The reason we place any credit in witness and historians is not derived from any connection, which we perceive a priori between testimony and reality, but because we are accustomed to find a conformity between them. But when the fact attested is such a one as seldom fallen under our observation, here is a contest of two opposite experiences of which the one destroys the other as far as its force goes. And the superior can only operate on the mind by the force which remains. His point is that the prior probability of an event can often give us reason to doubt the reliability of testimony reporting it. Hume uses the example of Cato, who was widely regarded in his time as a reliable authority. He says, I should not believe such a story were it told to me by Cato, was a proverbial saying in Rome, and even during the lifetime of that philosophical patriot. The incredibility of a fact, it was allowed, might invalidate so great an authority. So he's saying that, look, this some claims can just be so wild, can be so have such a low prior probability that even the most reliable of authorities would not be able to convince them, convince us that they had really occurred. Okay. Okay. Um, so I know this is a, another controversial um, aspect of it, but I guess where we could move to next is um, kind of Hume's definition of a miracle. I know that there's some kind of <laughs> push and pull with regard to how he conceives of a miracle versus how I guess a lot of people objecting to the argument uh, object in this uh, particular sense. So um, how does uh, Hume define uh, the concept of a miracle uh, in his um, writing here? Um, I think that's a really good question because I think um, this is another area where it's very easy to kind of fall into a pitfall um, that you don't really necessarily have to because I think that okay. Um, the quibbles about the definition of a miracle um, are largely largely just that. They're quibbles. Because I think Hume provides us with a very good definition of miracle. So according to Hume, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And his firm and an unalterable experience has established these laws. The proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. So... Hume understands laws of nature as the descriptions of patterns of the necessary connections that reveal the inherent powers and dispositions of things in the usual course of nature we all uniformly experience. They are our empirical general generalizations with no counterexamples. Remember, this is what Hume calls proof, not a demonstration, a proof. So an inductive generalization that admits of no exceptions. And so he uses examples like all men must die, that lead cannot of itself remain suspended in the air, that fire consumes wood and is extinguished by water. Um, and so it should be noted, because this is often confused, um, that... A uh, law of nature does not imp imply an exceptionless regularity of nature tout court. Um, as J.L. Mackey helpfully clarifies here, the laws of nature describe the ways in which the world works when left to itself, when not interfered with. A miracle occurs when the world is not left to itself, when something distinct from the natural order as a whole intrudes into it. So the, the objection that is often levied here is that Hume just kind of defines miracles out of ex out of um, something that we could believe exists yeah, because he yeah. thinks that a law of nature is an exceptionless um, 
law and that God breaking an exceptionist law can't happen, then that would be a contradiction. Spinoza argues along similar lines of much more sophisticated than the crude reason I just gave there. But I don't think Hume is doing that. I don't think Hume is trying to define miracles out of something that we could know. I think that what he's trying to do is to say that, like, look, if God's will did not intervene, we can reasonably reasonably expect that the laws of nature will hold and that the events that we expect will occur. And yeah. so that when those events that we expect with such a final degree of assurance, when those events happen, those are the things that demand our attention. These are the things that make them religiously significant. It's how God would communicate a sign to us. It's, it's something that's meant to grab our attention and be the foundation of a religious system. Um, and recall, Hume makes important use of the distinction between the moral certainty from uniform and exceptionalist experience he calls proofs and the varying degrees of assurance from non-uniform, what he calls probabilities. Right, so right. proofs and probabilities are distinct from demonstrations. He tries to take the technical language that we might find in probability and bring it more to everyday ordinary use because he thinks that People are going to be able to see that, you know, hey, the argument that he's putting forward is no different than if we were uh, examining the um, evidence of testimony for things like witches or fairies or gremlins. He mm -hmm. thinks that all of these things fall into those extraordinary, marvelous slash violation of um, laws of nature type category. Um, so Hume says, all effects follow not with like certainty from their supposed causes. Some events are found in all countries and all ages to have been constantly conjoined together. Others are found to have been more variable and sometimes to disappoint our expectations. So that in our reasonings concerning matter of fact, there are all imaginable degrees of assurance from the highest certainty, again, what he calls a proof, to yeah. the lowest species of moral certainty. Of moral so doesn't evidence. doesn't Hume though draw like a, a distinction between like a miracle and a marvelous event? Yes. So I think this is another important distinction that he very explicitly draws in of miracles. So um, on Hume's view, a marvelous event is a very rare um, event, um, but that is consistent with the laws of nature. Okay. Um, but for him, for him, a miracle per se is a violation of the laws of nature. Um, it's an event we would never experience um, because the law. We would assume the laws of nature would hold constant, and unless they were violated by some supernatural will of a deity, they're going to remain constant. So Hume says. It is no miracle that a man seemingly in good health should die on a sudden because such a kind of death has been frequently observed to happen. But it is a miracle that a dead man should come to life because that has never been observed in any age or country. There must therefore be uniform experience against every miraculous event. Otherwise, the event would not merit that appellation. And as a uniform experience amounts to a proof there is here a direct and full proof from the nature of the fact against the existence of any miracle. Nor can such a proof be destroyed or the miracle rendered credible, but by an opposite proof, which is superior. So 
a consequence of Hume's definition here is that this conception of miracle, um, rationally establishing miracles requires very strong evidence of testimony in their favor. Um, And so Hume famously says, a wise man therefore proportions his belief to the evidence. He says, in such conclusions as are founded on an infallible experience, he expects the event with the last degree of assurance and regards his past experience as a full proof of the future existence of that event. Hume considers the possibility of a miracle testimony that, this is him saying it again, considered a part and in itself amounts to an entire, entire proof. So he's imagining a testimony. It's so good that right. considered a part in and of itself, it itself amounts to an empire in an entire proof. So in that case, there's a proof against proof, proof from the laws of nature that the miracle didn't happen and the proof from the credibility of the testimonies have happened yeah. um, and of the strongest must prevail, but still with diminution of its force in proportion to that of his antagonist. So what does all this mean? So in such a case, it does not seem we can rationally decide whether the event reported occurred or whether the testimony is false. We've reached an evidential impasse. Given the nature of miracles, it seems no matter how reliable the evidence of testimony in practice, we, we are not likely to overcome the intrinsic improbability of a violation of a law of nature. But this isn't the only takeaway from a reverse test. Particular violations of the laws of nature by a deity must also have a low prior probability for other reasons. As J.H. Sobel points out, miracles in general would all be immediate realizations and material things of the wills and intentions of invisible and so bodiless agents, contrary to our exceptionalist experience of agents, wills, and intentions operating only by way of their bodies. So turning to... um, I guess... Quick question. So um, you said something to the effect of like, given the nature of miracles, um, no matter how reliable the evidence that we might receive, uh, no matter how reliable that is in practice, we can't overcome the, I think you called it the intrinsic probability of a violation. The prior of the law probability. Of nature. I should say, if I the, say the okay, the prior. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the very low prior probability of a miracle. Yeah. I guess from what it, and, and I, is it correct that it's not just, I mean, it is, an, it is, it's a, is it an in-principle objection? It's not an in-principle objection. It's a very good question. It's an in-practice objection. It's saying that, like, look, because the chips have fallen this way, right? you're just not going to be, the, the, you have um, the unreliability, so we'll get into this in a second too. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, what I, I guess what I'm saying is that given the fact that the history of regularity of nature is there, given that that's in our background knowledge, it's always going to be the case that that's going to trump um, any testimony, no matter how how great of quality it is. Is that what he's saying? Because it seems like that's what he's saying. I, maybe I'm. So you know. So he's saying it um, in an in practice sense. So there's what there's two ways you can interpret this. You can say mm-hmm. that he's given an in principle objection, where you're saying that look, even in principle, um, there's no amount of testimony that could overcome uh, the prior improbability of a miracle. 
Okay. But I don't think that that's the case. I think he's giving what's uh, what Gregory Dawes calls a de facto objection to miracles. He's saying that, look, sure. in practice, these sorts of testimonies are so unreliable. And the prior improbability of miracle is so incredibly low that even if we were to come up with the evidence that we're that he imagines in this scenario, that still wouldn't be enough evidence for us to um, overturn the laws of nature. To think that the laws of nature were actually overturned. So, R.F. Ahmed of Cambridge University gives a very good example of this. Hmm. So he he asks us to imagine three um, different thermometers in water, and so we look at the first. Um, and we're told that all three um, of these uh, bu uh, uh, buckets of water are not boiling. And so the first thermometer says, um, look, the water, the, the water in this bucket is about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And so you might go, okay, that's, that's, that sounds about right. Um, that seems to be your, the, what we would expect. The second bucket says that the water is about 180 degrees or to 205 degrees. And so you'd think, you put your hand in the water and it seems kind of warm. You go, huh, that doesn't seem right. There must be something wrong with the measuring. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the third one and it says that it's 340 degrees Fahrenheit. And you, again, you stick your hand in it and it's not boiling. You go, okay, there's something wrong with this. There's definitely something wrong with this thermometer. And so it w wouldn't be, even if you were to put more thermometers in the bottles, this third bucket of water, and they all read that it was 345 degrees Fahrenheit, you would still be justified in thinking that something else is going on. Yeah. The laws of nature have not been violated, but there is some, something wrong with our instrumentation. And so Hume is making a sim similar point here that, that look, the, the chances that something has gone wrong with the testimony and the way in which we've gathered the information that we have, the likelihood that that something has gone wrong there is almost always more more probable than that the laws of nature have been violated from the outside. Hmm. Yeah, no, I guess it, for me, it sounds like that is going to be, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstanding. I guess we can just continue. I don't, maybe I'm not understanding the argument fully. Well, so we'll, uh, it'll help once we get to um, thinking about it in Bayesian terms. And so um, once we start looking at it in Bayesian terms, that will help us make more sense of it. So, um, Okay. Um, yeah. So then I guess we can move on to the next section then. So having drawn like some of those important distinctions, right, um, reflecting on the relevance of the prior probability uh, to mirror to miracle testimony and defining the concept of miracle uh, in terms of, as Hume sees it, the laws of nature, what is Hume's like main argument in part one of on miracles here? Or, uh... Yeah. So Hume teases us at the beginning by saying that um, he believes he's found an everlasting check to all kinds of superstitious delusion and consequently will be useful as long as the world endures. Um, and so the central part of part one found in Hume's Of Miracles is that the rationality of believing miracle testimony depends on weighing the varieties of conformity, 
between uh, between testimony and reality against the probability of event that has seldom fallen under our observation. It is this active weighing of probabilities that Hume finds so important because a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. He does not think we should believe a miracle has occurred on the basis of miracle testimony if the probability of the testimony's falsehood is less than the probability of the violation of the law of nature. Hume, in part, Hume ends part one of his Of Miracles with what J.H. Sobel has called Hume's theorem. And so Hume says, no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. Hume goes on to illustrate this with the resurrection of Christ. When anyone tells me that he saw a dead man restored to life, I immediately consider with myself whether it be more probable that this person should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact which he relates should really have happened. I weigh the one miracle against the other and always reject the greater miracle. So there are interpretations of Hume's theorem entailed by the Kolmogorov axioms of probability and the definition of condition, the definition of conditional probability. So at least some interpretations are uncontroversially true. What's more controversial is what implications such principles have for what we should believe. Hume's theorem has the interesting implication that if you believe testimony of a religious nature is sufficient to establish a resurrection as more probable than not, given testimony in its favor, then you must also believe a resurrection is more probable than the falsehood of religious testimony for a resurrection. That's what Hume believes is his everlasting check. For the Christian, Hume gives them a necessary condition to command his belief or opinion, to or establish the miracle as credible. But this necessary condition is a very high bar. So this comes back to your question of, is it an in principle or a de facto objection? Yeah, I think yeah. it's a de facto objecto because he's saying, look, here's a necessary condition. And you're almost certainly not going to get to this necessary condition. You're not going to be in possession of miracle testimony whose falsity would be more miraculous, that is to say, less probable than a violation of the laws of nature. Yeah, I guess to say is it to say that it's merely de facto though, wouldn't we maybe I'm misunderstanding, wouldn't we need to at least be able to conceive of the possibility um, and it, like at least describe a like a coherent state of affairs in which we have miraculous testimony that rationally brings us to a miracle on Hume's view? Well, so that's a really good question because Hume tries to do that. So he tries to show what it might look like for us mm -hmm. to all believe that a miracle had actually occurred. He tries to imagine that the earth was covered in eight days of darkness. Well, on the basis of testimony, though, I guess. On well, the basis of testimony, yes. So, this so is not directly having... perceiving it. Yes. So it's. I think it's a really good point to bring up as far as um, whether Hume is putting an in-principle objection or a de facto objection, because it's very often thought that Hume is giving an in-principle argument in the sense that he's got kind of this silver bullet that will put a merciful end to all this nonsense, as John yeah. Ehrman is, uh, says in his book. Um, but I don't think that's what Hume's doing, because if that's what Hume was doing, he wouldn't have to go all, go and give us all this empirical evidence. He would just 
have the silver bullet, he would use the silver bullet and he wouldn't have to say all this other stuff. And so I think it's because he says all this other stuff that he's say, he's saying, no, look, we're weighing evidence. The evidence yeah. could come come out certain ways. It just so happens that all in practice, all the evidence we have against a miracle is really, really high. Yeah. So I guess and a miracle kinda... by nature is the most improbable event possible. Yeah, and so, so if you've got you a could proof, say... you're, you're weighing a proof, what Hume calls a proof, you're weighing it against a probability. Right. You need the probability to outweigh the proof. Well, yeah. how do you do that? In practice. Yeah, you got to find an example of a proof through testimony. You're not right? saying so... that it can't in print. You're not saying in principle that it can't happen, but you're asking... What would it even look like? Hume right. doesn't even, you know, we've never experienced the kind of testimony. We would need something that looks much more like a, a very controlled science experiment that involved many, many independent witnesses. Yeah. Well, I guess kind of playing with that idea, what if it were the case that, um, oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I can't, it's hard to think of this, right? Because well, so uh, one of the examples given, not in the um, of miracles, but in yeah. the dialogues concerning natural religion, um, Cleanthes, the character, one of Hume's characters, imagines you know a booming voice from the stars um, that spoke in a language that everyone could understand universally, and that stars rearrange themselves into patterns to give us messages that okay, yeah, yeah. everyone could universally universally read. So unless and everyone so, was like diluted in the exact same way, then yeah. you know, that would be quite Let's, that would be quite a miraculous thing and that would be arguably be the proof. Thing. Yeah, that would be quite a minute but so what Hume says here is very um, interesting because he would say that look, even in that imagined scenario, you would still have to take into account things like the skills of professional illu illusionists. Is this some is this some very elaborate magic trick? Your confidence in that that, that a miracle would have would still be very low. You would have that crazy, but you would still those two proofs would be fighting each other, and it would only just very slightly lean in favor so you wouldn't have like any assurance that you had that this was a particular violation of a law of nature by the volition of a divine will would still be very 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 small you would still be if you were using that as the foundation of a religion it would still be on pretty shaky ground yeah it would yeah. be like many many years you know this that bucket of water with thermometers putting many many different thermometers in it under different conditions with many and you were still getting this weird anomalous result like even then even if you were just convinced that um the all of these measuring instruments were right um you would still only have a very small confidence that the laws of nature had somehow been suspended or violated. Hume still thinks that because of all of our past experience, we are justified in moving forward in our inquiry as if there's some natural explanation, some natural explanation consistent with the laws of nature that we should look for. Even if we don't know what that explanation is, we're justified in looking for one. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, so... This is kind of the enduring 
argument um, that Hume stirred up so much controversy with and that people have been discussing for, you know, years and years afterwards and it will yeah. still continue to discuss. Um, its impact is certainly felt today. Um, I mentioned Arif Ahmed uh, earlier and he famously debated um, the eminent New Testament scholar Gary Habermas on the bodily resurrection of Jesus based on the eyewitness accounts given in the Gospels. And so Dr. Ahmed's argument certainly echo echoes Hume's. So in the debate he that he does with him then? In the debate, if, if, if you, it's on YouTube. I okay. highly recommend going to watch it. Um, so the uh, Dr. Ahmed, he gives three premises, an argument with three premises. So the first mm -hmm. premise is, um, if two hypotheses are compatible with the evidence, we should prefer the one that we expect to be more frequent given evidence of that type. So this is analogous to Hume's theorem. Right, um, right. The second premise is we have frequently observed and verified beyond case, beyond doubt cases of independent and educated witnesses testifying at the time to something that didn't happen. So this is, these are the results that you would get from what Vogelin called the direct test. Right. And then the third premise is we have never observed and verified cases of bodily reanimation after three days or of solid bodies passing through rock. So these are the results that you would get from Hume's verse test. Um, so Dr. Ahmed concludes, therefore, it is more likely the witnesses got it wrong. So it's striking just how close this argument is to Hume's words. Um, in his first premise, Dr. Ahmed claims that other things being equal, we should prefer the hypothesis that we expect to be more frequent given evidence of that type. This is close to Hume's theorem and is close to Hume's own words that we must balance the opposite experiments where they are opposite and deduct the smaller from the greater. The third premise that we have never observed and verified cases of bodily resurrection is a result from the reverse test. The prior probability of a miracle is very low indeed, and the proof against a miracle from the very fact, very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. All that's left to consider in Dr. Ahmed's argument is the second empirical premise that independent and educated witnesses occasionally give false testimony. To this point, Hume has not said much about the empirical case for the reliability of miracle testimony, but he has alluded to their unreliability. We are left with the question posed by Hume, is it more probable witnesses should either deceive or be deceived, or that the fact that they relate should really have happened. We must weigh the one miracle against the other and always reject the greater miracle. Interesting. Yeah, no, so maybe that's a good place to kind of end this first part, um, whereas in the next part we can kind of got it, we can kind of get into um, the general unreliability religious claim here. Yeah. Uh, Hume is going to very much unpack that in part two of, of Miracles. That's why he goes on to write so much more on okay. the uh, unreliability of religious miracle testimony. Yeah, so where we left off in part one is Hume had just given his theorem, where he is saying that kind of the everlasting check that he wants to say is uh, when we're 
considering miracle testimony, we want to see whether or not um, the falsehood of that miracle testimony would be more miraculous than the event which it uh, seeks to establish. Right. So if he does that, then what's what's the need for the part two? Why, why the sequel? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a very good question because you know part one of Hume's miracles is you know he he gets his basic argument on the table. He does it in thirteen paragraphs over five pages. Um, so then why does he go to write twenty eight more paragraphs over thirteen pages? Why not just end of miracles with part one? Um, so I previously noted that Hume had little to say about the empirical case for the reliability of miracle testimony in part one. And Hume's theorem turns crucially on the case that can be made for the reliability of such testimony. What if the results of a direct test are favorable to religious miracle testimony? What if what if can be done is better than Hume's consideration of eight days of darkness or of Cleanthes' idea of a booming voice from the god rearranging stars. Um, this possibility must be considered. Um, in part one, we are given a proof against the occurrence of a miracle by appeal to the proofs of the laws of nature. But what of the reliability of miracle testimony considered apart and in itself? Hume uses his part two to make the empirical case that miracle testimony of a religious nature is notoriously unreliable, and it's unlikely we will ever encounter religious miracle testimony that could amount to a proof equal to our moral certainty of the laws of nature. Again, this is if in the last episode we talked about how the, the laws of nature have a proof, but the reliability of our testimony only amounts to a probability. Hume has distinguished between proofs and probabilities. They're not demonstrations. They're inductive arguments for him. Right. And so he just doesn't see how this probability, we're ever going to have this probability that's so good enough that it's going to rise, it's going to have the force to outweigh all of this, uh, this mountain of evidence that we have that the, that the miracle didn't occur. Um, Hume argues that the frequency of faked miracles, the human propensity to the marvelous, the possibility of deception, and the skills of professional illusionists all give us reason to doubt the reliability of religious miracle testimony. So Hume says, but what greater temptation than to appear a missionary, a prophet, an ambassador from heaven? Who would not encounter many dangers and difficulties in order to attain so sublime a character? Hmm. Hume's point is that it is not unusual, much less more miraculous, for witnesses to deceive or be deceived regarding religious miracles. The human mind has a psychological tendency to believe what is strange and marvelous. And this should make us suspicious of religious miracle testimony in general. So Hume has several things to say here. He says... The passion of surprise and wonder arising from miracles being an agreeable emotion gives a sensible tendency towards the belief of those events from which it is derived. With what greediness are the miracle accounts of travelers received? The many instances of forged miracles and prophecies and supernatural events, which in all ages have either been detected by contrary evidence or which detect themselves by their absurdity, prove sufficiently the strong propensity of mankind to the extraordinary and the marvelous and not reasonably to beget a suspicion against all relations of this kind. The smallest spark may here kindle into the greatest flame because the 
materials are always prepared for it. The gazing populace receive greedily without examination whether soothes superstition and promotes wonder. Hume gives a thorough empirical case for the unreliability of miracle testimony of a religious nature. Um, argues we have a strong propensity towards the marvelous. We have many examples of false miracle testimony and the religious miracle testimonies of competing religious traditions destroy the credibility of one another. All of this counts against the reliability of testimony of this kind. He says, there is not to be found in all history any miracle attested by a sufficient number of men of such unquestioned good sense, education, and learning as to secure us against all delusion in themselves, of such undoubted integrity as to place them beyond all suspicion of any design to deceive others of such credit and reputation in the eyes of mankind, as to have a great deal to lose in case of their being detected in any falsehood, and at the same time attesting facts performed in such a public manner and so celebrated a part of the world as to render the detection unavoidable, all which circumstances are requisite to give a full assurance in the testimony of men. With all of this in place, Hume is ready to state his maxim worthy of our attention, to serve as an everlasting check to all kinds of superstitious delusions. Ooh. Uh, all right, well then let's get to it. What is Hume's maxim, and I guess what do you see as its legacy for um, people interested in philosophy of religion? So recall Hume has drawn an important distinction between a probability and a proof. Again, I can't emphasize enough just how important this distinction is. Right. right. Um, a proof is an exceptionless argument founded on an infallible experience, expecting the event with the last degree of assurance. And a probability is an argument with mixed observations, and our assurance admits of a diminution greater or less in proportion as the fact is more or less unusual. In Hume's final analysis, Hume argues the laws of nature are supported by a proof but miracle testimony does not even amount to a probability. But according to Hume's theorem, we must balance the opposite experiments where they are opposite and deduct the smaller number from the greater. If miracle testimony, much less religious miracle testimony, cannot even rise to the level of a probability, then we have no evidential support for a violation of a law of nature, much less a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent. Upon the whole, that Hume, this is Hume's, Hume's words here. Yeah. Upon the whole, then, it appears that no testimony for any kind of miracle has ever amounted to a probability, much less to a proof. We may establish it as a maximum, maxim, that no human testimony can have such force as to prove a miracle and make it a just foundation for any such system of religion. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I guess what are some... I guess what's like the endearing lesson you kind of pull from um, of miracles here? Um, so I see Hume's maxim um, as a methodological rule rather than a metaphysical proposition. So I don't think Hume is making the ontological claim that miracles never happen, nor is he arguing that we could never in principle know about the occurrence of a miracle, but he is arguing we are justified in practice in proceeding in our inquiries as if the laws of nature remain constant right. and the miracle so testimony is somehow mistaken. Claim. It's epistemological claim. Yeah. 
Um, Hume's main argument in part one is to convince us the evidence we need for the reliability of a miracle testimony is not the evidence we have. And he uses part two to convince us the evidence we need is unlikely to be something we will ever encounter in practice. So Hume's maxim as a methodological rule is entailed by at least two plausible claims. So the first of those claims is, if the unreliability of testimony is more probable than the event it reports, then the testimony is not credible, so we should not believe it. The second claim is the unreliability of religious miracle testimony is more probable than the miracles they report. So that first claim is just the restatement of Hume's theorem, and that right. second claim is the case that we make against miracle testimony. In That's two, also factor. Well, yeah, but you're also you you get you you get two pieces. You get the empirical case from from part right. two. The comparison, you, yeah. You get the you get the results of the reverse test and the direct test. Yes. Both of those tests do not help miracles, <laughs> but the results of both of those tests count against believing that the miracle has occurred. The first premise is Hume's theorem, set as the standard by which miracle testimony is deemed credible enough to command our opinion. And the second claim is the result of applying what Foglin called Hume's direct test for the reliability of testimony and Hume's reverse test for the prior probability of a miracle. Systems of religion might be justified somehow in practice, but Hume's maxim tells us that this support will not come from religious miracle testimony. Hmm. The lasting legacy of Hume's argument in Of Miracles even if only a provisional one in practice, is that no miracle testimony is credible enough to be the foundation of a system of religion. David Hume was writing uh, roughly when? Uh, so this was writing coming out sometime in the 1740s or 1750s. Okay. So I can't remember exactly. Yeah, it's been a while. So I guess, like, philosophically speaking, you know, there's been some developments. Um, are there any kind of further insights uh, that those kind of developments have been able to provide? Yeah, so that's where this debate really gets interesting. So about the same time that Hume publishes Of Miracles, um, the development of the probability calculus was really coming into its own with a figure um, named Thomas Bayes, um, who we get the name Bayes' theorem from. And so Bayesianism is kind of a, a feature, a tool that we find very common in um, philosophical analyses of all sorts of different things. And so it can actually be used as a tool to help illuminate this 18th century controversy, controversy all those years later. Um, and so far, I have been distinguishing between the credibility of testimony and the reliability of testimony. And so that's not an accident um, because in Bayesian terms, the credibility of testimony is what is called the posterior probability or the probability the event the testimony reports actually occurred given the testimony reporting. Right. The re this should be distinguished um, between the reliability of testimony, which is the likelihood the testimony reports the miracle given the miracle actually occurred. And so it's very easy to confuse these two things. So Bayes' yeah. theorem, one of the things that it allows us to do is to establish a distinction like this and to help us not make this mistake and get these two very different things confused. And confusing them is a very, very big mistake 
in probability theory. Um, so Bayes' theorem is a consequence of the Kolmogorov axioms of probability and the definition of conditional probability. And it allows us to calculate the credibility of a miracle testimony in terms of the reliability of the miracle testimony and the prior probability of a miracle. So given this Bayesian analysis, there are three probability judgments we are most concerned about if we want to calculate whether some miracle testimony is, is credible. So this is what Bayes' theorem helps us do. So the three terms that we're interested in are the prior probability of a miracle, the likelihood the miracle testimony is reliable, and the likelihood the miracle testimony is unreliable. Let's assume the reliability of the miracle testimony is equal to one minus the likelihood the miracle testimony is unreliable. Given this assumption, our Bayesian calculation is that the credibility of miracle testimony, given the testimony that uh, the, the miracle occurred, given the testimony is at fa its favor, is the prior probability times the reliability of the testimony all over the prior probability times the reliability of the testimony plus one minus the prior probability times one minus the reliability of the testimony. That's the very simplified Bayesian analysis of the situation we're in. This equation allows us to calculate the credibility of testimony by comparing or weighing the probability of the reliability of the testimony with the prior probability of what the testimony reports, which is exactly what Hume's of miracles would have us do. That's what his theorem tells us we should do. We are weighing the results of the direct test and the reverse test. There are three important consequences of this equation. So the first consequence is, is that if it is just as probable the miracle testimony is unreliable as it is that the miracle occurred, then our credibility of the testimony is equal to 0.5. So we have no more reason to believe the testimony is false than that a miracle actually occurred. The second consequence of this is that if it is more probable the miracle testimony is unreliable than the miracle occurred, then the credibility of the testimony is less than 0.05. So it does not meet the Bayesian standard of credibility. So Hume's maxim is going to be that, look, in practice, this is the way the equation always comes out. It's always in practice going to be less than 0.5. And then that's why no miracle can be used to establish a system of religion. And so the third consequence, um, if it is more probable the miracle occurred than the miracle testimony is mistaken, then the posterior probability is greater than 0.5. This is the result the Christian wants from the Bayesian calculation, but is in practice very unlikely that it's going to get it. So I guess other than the resurrection, um, are there other kind of claims that this uh, approach uh, can be brought to bear on? So I think so, and I think there's um, actually a, a, pr a pretty interesting one um, that Matthew McCormick has pointed out in his book. Um, and so he asked the question, why do we not believe which testimony at Salem is credible? So why don't we actually believe that there were witches at Salem? Right. Um, there was a lot like... Uh, you know, neighbors turned on each other. We have affidavits and court statements. We have multiple eyewitnesses confessing to having performed witchcraft. Um, and none of these are, these aren't second, third, fourth hand documents. These are all um, firsthand documents that we have of the time. Um, 
very surprising that people would act in this way. It's a very interesting piece of history. I, I definitely encourage people to um, look it up sometime because you'll be left wondering, like, why did these, you know, why do these, why did these husbands turn their wives in as witches? Were they, were they really witches? It's very tough to explain why people would behave in the ways that they did. Um, but a Bayesian interpretation of Hume's theorem gives us a plausible answer to this question. So if we believe which, which testimony is sufficient to establish um, witchcraft as credible, then we must also believe witchcraft is more probable than the unreliability of that witch testimony. This is a consequence of our Bayesian interpretation of Hume's theorem. But if, but if it is more probable that witch testimony is unreliable, than that witchcraft actually occurred at Salem, then the credibility of witch testimony is less than 0.5. And so we should not believe there were any actual witches at Salem. The Bayesian interpretation of Hume's theorem explains why witch testimony is not credible, and the evidence for the reliability of witch testimony at Salem is arguably much better than the evidence we have for the reliability of miracle testimony for Jesus' resurrection. The Bayesian interpretation of Hume's theorem prevent, presents the Christian with an awkward dilemma. They can either admit there was actually witchcraft in Salem, or they must explain why it's rational to believe in Jesus' resurrection, but not witchcraft at Salem without appealing to a Bayesian interpretation of Hume's theorem. It seems the Christian has the work cut out for them. So... Uh... I know that there are like a number of objections and we've kind of maybe hinted at a few of them already at this point. Um, I guess, you know, what do you think are some of the more uh, difficult ones to wrestle with, uh, with regard to, um, you know, Hume's general argument here? So the, there's a lot of objections out there towards Hume. And I'm going to say that I think that a lot of them are just really bad because I think they either involve, um, a misunderstanding of what Hume is saying, or just a really bad interpretation of what Hume is saying, just not quite getting it. But I do think that there are some very good, important objections. And so I think the two of the, the two of the most important ones come from the same person, which is a contemporary of David Hume named Richard Price. And so um, he raises two objections to Hume's of miracles. The first is um, evidence of miracle testimony could possibly outweigh the evidence for the law of nature. So you uh, pressed this objection earlier in that, you know, it's, there, there must be some possibility that the evidence could possibly outweigh the law of nature and be in favor of the miracle testimony. Um, and his second objection is modestly reliable testimony can make credible an event with a very low prior probability. So what Price here does is give a counterexample. He gives an actual tangible counterexample to Hume's standard and where Hume's theory say that we shouldn't believe this event, one that everyone obviously does. And so he uses the example of a lottery. So he says, the improbability of drawing a lottery in any particular assigned manner, independently of the evidence of testimony, or of our own sense, acquainting us that it has been drawn in that manner, is such as exceeds all conception. And yet the testimony of a newspaper or of any common man is sufficient to put us out of doubt about it. Um, in the first of these objections, 
Hume can agree the evidence of miracle testimony could possibly outweigh the evidence for a law of nature. And so I've I've alluded to, I haven't quite uh, explained it yet, but Hume alludes to this in Of Miracles. He gives the example of, suppose all authors in all languages agree that from the 1st of January, 1600, there was a total darkness over the whole earth for eight days. Suppose that the tradition of this extraordinary event is still strong and lively among the people, that all travelers who return from foreign countries bring us accounts of the same tradition without the least variation or contradiction. It is evident that our present philosophers, instead of doubting the fact, ought to receive it as certain and ought to search for the causes which it might be derived. The decay, corruption, and dissolution of nature is an event rendered probable by so many analogies that any phenomenon which seems to have a tendency towards that catastrophe comes within the reach of human testimony. That testimony be very extensive and uniform. So I think the first of Price's objections can easily be met in that, yes, we can imagine situations in where we would doubt the, whether the laws of nature were constant in some situation. Yeah, the lottery um, objection seems a bit more. Yeah, the, se bit more, the, the second uh, objection <laughs> of price, I think, is by far the more important objection. Um, because it's a lot like an ontological argument in that you know that it goes wrong somehow, but to put your finger on exactly where it goes wrong is really difficult. Um. But Hume can answer whether or not lotteries really are analogous to miracles. So when considering lotteries, the probability of any token lottery event, such as the drawing of a particular ticket number, is admittedly vanishingly small. But the probability of the occurrence of that type of event, such as right. drawing any lottery ticket, is very probable, if not certain. In the case of miracles, not only is any token miracle improbable, such as the resurrection of Christ, but also any event of that type, the violation mm. of any law of nature. To decide whether this objection succeeds, a Bayesian analysis can be used to determine if the relevant probabilities in the miracle case are the same as in the Price's lottery example, or to determine if they are significantly different. Right, so this I guess is the... This is super helpful. Um, perhaps a better... Um... And that, well, you could say that, you know, if we knew ahead of time that someone throughout history was going to raise from the dead, if that was a, a guarantee, then this would be more like the lottery case, right? Because then it's just the question of, well, we know that someone is going to be raised from the dead. Who is that person going so to be? So Hume even sees prophecies as violations of the laws of nature. So he thinks that this argument will... Also, because if anyone were to have knowledge of a prophecy... Right, yeah, I guess you would... Yeah, if I were to assume with certainty the reliability of a piece of prophecy and kind of bracket that, then this would yeah, roughly to equate that. to the... Yeah, yeah. But yeah, go on. <laughs> so um, the philosophers, uh, Philip David and Donald Gillies, um, give a Bayesian analysis in their paper, a Bayesian analysis of Hume's argument concerning miracles. Not the most clever title, but it gets the point mm -hmm. across. Um, and here's what they say about price and lotteries and Hume and miracles. So it emerges, contrary to price, that on a Bayesian analysis, the lottery case and the miracle case are different. In the lottery case, the reported result has a very low prior probability, but the probability of a particular wrong number being reported is also very low. 
In the calculations, these two low probabilities cancel out, enabling us to assign a reasonably high probability to the report, reported result being correct. In the miracles case, though, the prior probability of the miracle is also very low, but there is no other very low probability in the formula which cancels this out. Mm -hmm. Even making the most favorable possible assumptions regarding the reliability of the testimony, the probability of the miracle given that testimony is still too low to make the miracle believable. It looks as if we must conclude that a Bayesian analysis shows Hume's argument concerning miracles to be correct. Interesting, interesting. Well, I think that will uh, conclude our our second part here. Um, I guess, Ben, uh, at this point, where do you, I know that you want to continue um, kind of exploring this issue. Um, what kind of plans do you have for, for further exploring the issue? Yeah, so I am going to be interviewing um, Dr. Vanderberg, who wrote um, Hume, a book on Hume and Miracles. And so we, he takes a different approach to Hume than I do. So I have brought a probability calculus to Hume and to help me interpret Hume and to parse out the claims that he's making. Um, but the probability calculus, for all intents and purposes, was foreign and alien to Hume. Hume didn't mm -hmm. have the probability calculus in mind when he did that. And so Dr. Vanderberg's um, thesis is that the probability calculus and Hume's philosophy are incommensurable. And so that we don't need the probability calculus and so that we should interpret Hume in his own words using concepts that would be familiar to him and that his case succeeds in his own terms and that we don't need mm. these concepts and tools from the probability calculus in order to make that case. And so this will give another perspective on how we can interpret Hume's of miracles as an everlasting check against uh, superstition and delusion. All right. All right. Some strong <laughs> words. Music is by the Chicago-based band Casserole. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what real atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon, to which you can make a small recurring donation in support of the show. Special thanks to our newest patron, Tyler Bimrose, as well as Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samara Rira, Kim Bushkovsky, Anthony Lawson, Jeff Rubinoff, and Brandon McCleary. <laughs> <laughs>